This week is a special week in the life of our local church as we get to partake in some vital aspects of the church's life. This includes this morning the Lord's Supper and on Sunday a few baptisms and the right hand of fellowship. We'll be welcoming some new members into the church. Even in the midst of a pandemic with all the disruptions to what we call normal life, God is still saving and sanctifying people. He's still building his church. And so long as the church remains fixed on Christ and his gospel, it will remain unified and, and uh, one. It will be used by God. Despite all the sources of division and distraction, the church will be one and used by God. This makes me think of the early church. Not just the early church, but the first church, like Acts 2. Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost. The power of the Spirit moves in those who hear. And so what's the result? 3,000 believe and they're baptized. And so the church has begun. The new covenant church of Christ, it's, it's off to the races. What did the church do next though? What did this new life in Christ look like? How did it affect their lives immediately? What did they start doing? Acts 2.42 tells us, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You see, as their lives changed, the activities of their lives changed. This new daily lifestyle emerged. We're not talking about like once a week, Sunday morning church attendance. No, but they came to Christ and with their continual devotion to their new Lord came just a whole new way of living. It says they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles, as you know, they're the representatives of Christ who had just ascended, but now they're there to to show the way, to tell people about the Lord. And so you have all these brand new believers, and as often as the apostles teach, we want to hear that. We want to know more about our Lord and the way of salvation. It says they were also devoted to the breaking of bread. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. This was a new memorial time of remembering their Lord. And then it says they were devoted to prayer. Prayer is our lifeline to God. The God who saves, God who sanctifies, we, we call to him in prayer. And so the word prayer, the Lord's Supper, these were all hallmarks of the church, the, the very first church. And these likewise should still be part of the essence of any local church. But you'll notice there's, there's one more hallmark in there, and that is fellowship. It says they were also continually devoting themselves to fellowship. This fellowship refers to the common life or the shared life of the church. And God doesn't save people to be alone. He immediately plants them in the garden of his church where they're surrounded by all these other people who also call on the name of the Lord. And God intends for his people to simply now go through life together. It's not just huddle up once a week for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's part of it. That's very important. But he just wants them to now march through life, run the race of faith now together. Even on a Thursday, for example. But they're to support one another, build up one another. It's a huge element of the church. You keep reading the rest of that passage in Acts 2. It's also interesting that what gets the emphasis is not the apostles' teaching. 
or the Lord's Supper or prayer, but the early church's fellowship. It really shines. That's where you see the common life of the church in action. And there, there's so much genuine love among these members that if any one of them was in dire need, the others were just quickly and happily and willingly sacrificing to help them. How far would you go to help a suffering family member? How much time or money would you expend to help a family member in need? I've seen people sacrifice immensely to help a family member in need. The thing is, though, when you come to Christ, it's like you gain a bunch of new family members. You're knit together by the blood of Christ. You enter the family of God. And the early church, at least, was willing to go the distance to help these new family members in need. You're not my literal brother or sister. I didn't even know you a week ago, but, but now in Christ, you are. And here's the shirt off my back. Here's some money to help. Here's some food. The, the Roman world was disturbed, challenged, because you have these new people who are strangers, but they're calling themselves brothers and sisters. They're, they're sharing a love that the world just has never known. But this is simply what happens when you've truly tasted and been transformed by the love of Christ. And so it says at the end of that passage, Acts 2.46, says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. You notice again, the continued emphasis on the church's fellowship. They were devoted to the word, prayer, the Lord's Supper. But their newness in Christ was really going to show itself to the world in their devotion to this fellowship, this one body. These first Christians had a million reasons to divide. They also were outcasts. They were being rejected by the Roman world and the Jewish world. But they overcame all that through their surpassing devotion to Christ. Christ was the glue that kept them together, that unified them, gave them one mind. And the result is they were used by God. Their fellowship visibly testified that life-changing power of the gospel. And God was going to use that to draw more and more people into this fellowship. Because after all, this, this fellowship is not closed It's open to all who would confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the same should be true today. It should characterize all local churches, ours included. It should be characterized by the same, you know, Christ-centered fellowship. Where all these different people still come together as one into this tapestry. And as we live out the newness that comes in Christ, it should just give a compelling witness to the world. A world which especially today, knows only division and strife. They should still be able to see in the church a peace, a harmony, a unity, a fellowship that is untouchable. With this in mind, I figured this morning it would be a fitting time just to further reflect on the nature, importance, and function of fellowship in the church. Like I said, between today and Sunday morning, we're going to see the fellowship acted out as we observe and partake in the Lord's Supper, baptisms, the right hand of fellowship. That's the ceremony we use for new members. And so what better time is there to, well, better appreciate 
church, the church itself as a fellowship. With our brief time, I just want to give you some reflections on the church as a fellowship. Nothing too formal. Just want to share some reflections with you of the church itself as a fellowship. This is meant to inform and maybe even challenge how you view the church. But again, I figured a fitting time to do so with uh, all the fellowship activities going on in the church this week. So I want to share some reflections on the church as a fellowship. To start with that, I mean, you better know what fellowship actually means. I'm talking biblically speaking, like what, what does that word really mean? Well, let's begin with the biblical meaning of fellowship. So first, the meaning of fellowship. The meaning of fellowship. If you're challenged to define fellowship biblically, what would you say? You might say it has a lot to do with togetherness, like has something to do with people getting together. And that's true. People getting together with something in common, that, that's part of it. Koinonia is the word in the Greek for fellowship. It's well known. It comes from koinos, which is just the word for common. It refers to something held in common. And fellowship in turn is where people hold life in common. They share together or partake together in some aspect of life. Now, for the most part, though, the, the tie that, that binds people together in life is just some activity or interest. And people just love gathering into to little groups centered on common interests where they share some part of life together. So there's like a million clubs. You can join a cycling club, a chess club, a sewing club. People gather around Sports, there's baseball leagues, comic book conventions, Boy Scouts. There's an endless list of groups, associations, and gatherings. It's almost like God programmed humans with this longing to gather and to share their lives with one another. Now, that being said, though, biblically, you would be wrong if you viewed fellowship as activity-based or activity-driven. It's not quite the case. It it will involve activities, but it's not activity-based or activity-driven. And that's how some people think of fellowship. You know, this fellowship, like, that's something Christians do in a fellowship hall when they engage in small talk around coffee and donuts. Like, we gather, we eat meals, we sing some songs. That's, That's fellowship, right? And again, listen, those might be legitimate expressions, Of our fellowship, yes, but what I want you to see is that the biblical essence of fellowship runs much deeper than that. You see, biblically, fellowship is not really about activities or interests, but relationship. We're talking about a soul linking relationship with one another, which stems from a soul linking relationship with Christ. You can, feel, you can picture the fellowship of the church like a tree. And your branch, there's all these individual branches, but at the same time, they're all connected to the trunk, which is Christ. But that very fact, in turn, connects them to one another. It's just one tree. It's all connected. And so they all share, all the members, all the branches, all share or participate in just the life of the tree, the, the same life 
flows through them all. And I said before, a good way to think of fellowship is sharing life together. But you see, in the, ch- in the church, that's true on multiple levels. Where we're not talking simply about sharing superficial aspects of life together, like we root for the same sports team. No, in the church, we're talking about sharing the very essence of life together. And what is that? What's the essence of this thing we call life? It's not a thing. It's not an activity. It's not a task. It's a person. Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is life. He's the source of life, the giver of life, the meaning of life. John eleven twenty five. 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. John 1, 4 says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And then 1 John five twenty says, we know that the son of God has come. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life is centered on a person. Jesus is eternal life incarnate. By faith, we come to know him. We come to be even united to him. We we enter into this life. That's what he's giving to us. And we're talking life to the fullest, not just a quantity of life. That's how we think of eternal life. Just life that just keeps on going. That's eternal life, a quantity. But no, he also defined eternal life as a quality of life. It's life to the fullest, life with God, with your maker. That's why Jesus in John 17, 3 prayed uh, that we would uh, have eternal life, which is knowing God and Christ Jesus, his son. We're talking life to the fullest, eternal life with God. And the church in turn consists of all those people who are partaking in this shared life. You as an individual are united to Christ as your head. And yeah, that's an individual thing at salvation. But that very act at the same time instantly unites you to all those other people who have done the same thing, been united to Christ by faith. It's a package deal. You're just united to others. And that's what this fellowship is. We're talking about shared life at the deepest level, the level of Christ. Fellowship is based on commonality, but but fellowship in the church is not driven by our superficial similarities. At the deepest level, we're made to partake of the same spirit, the same Lord, the same eternal life. The same common life of God flows through us now. Whether that gets expressed or not, there's many ways that gets expressed. It can be over coffee and donuts, but... By definition, the church is a fellowship. It's not just something we do. The church is a fellowship. It's a a body that shares life. We're talking shared life in and through Christ at every level. That's how you can think of fellowship. Shared life in and through Christ at every level. I think that's worth exploring even more. So let's, let's go to number two, the source of fellowship from helping you think more on the meaning of fellowship to the source of fellowship. You can turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. If you want to follow along, I would encourage you to do so. 
because we'll be here for a little while. First John chapter one, where John helps us understand the nature of biblical fellowship by clarifying an important distinction. We normally think of fellowship on a purely horizontal level, human to human, something people do. But John reminds us that our fellowship with one another comes from our fellowship with God himself, which in turn comes from our salvation. Notice how John begins by testifying of Jesus, who is the incarnate word of what? Life. He's the incarnate word of life. John 1.1, 1, 1, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. Notice he's testifying about Jesus Christ. He's the incarnate son of God, but he's also the word of life come down in human form. We so typically think of eternal life as just this abstract thing we get with salvation, just life forever. And it is in a measure of speaking, but in another sense, it's, it's a person. And that's, that's the reward of heaven after all, right? It's not a place. It's what makes heaven glorious is the person of God and his son Christ. Jesus came, or with Jesus came divine life itself. We're talking eternal life with the Father. You know, the door to eternal life was always closed to us because of our sin. And there's nothing we could do on our own to, to bust through that door. You just, you can't get through. And the only, the only thing left open to us was the pit of hell. That's an eternity away from the glory of God's presence. There's no fellowship. But this is why the father sent the son to, to forgive us our sins and to open up that door of eternal life. But to make it more abstract, Jesus is that door, right? He also is the door. Look how John goes on, verse three. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What John saw and heard, namely Christ himself, crucified yet risen, he now proclaims to you, why? That, that you might believe because this eternal life only comes by faith. As you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so John proclaims Christ for that reason. But notice how he puts it though. He proclaims Christ, he says, so that you too may have fellowship. Fellowship with us. And he says our fellowship is with the father and his son, Christ Jesus. And this is not John inviting the church to the fellowship hall for some coffee. He's inviting people to shared life with God himself. And no, he's not suggesting we become little gods or something like that. But God himself 
invites us to dwell forever in the glory of his presence. To, to fellowship with God. For those who come to Christ, who enter fellowship with God, a type of shared or common life, a life from God. Those who enter that, well, by definition, enter with others. They're going there, they're being with God, they're sharing life with God, but it's with others at the same time. They share a common eternal life. And that's why John says that you may have fellowship with us. You see, in John's mind, the heart of fellowship is not an activity, but a relationship. In salvation, you're entering a new you know, life-based relationship with God. That relationship, at the same time, forces you into relationship with all these other people. All those who, who've done the same thing, who've come to the same faith. And the church is simply the result of that. It's just the, the consequence of this salvation. You might wonder, like, why did God do it this way? Why doesn't he save people on a purely individualistic level? Why doesn't he sanctify people on a purely individualistic level? Why doesn't he bring us to heaven where it's just us and him? Like one-on-one, no one else. It's just, we just get God all to ourselves. God's omnipresent. So I'm sure he has the power to pull off giving everyone their own individualistic experience of eternity, right? He could, he, he could pull that off. Why didn't he do that? Why design this, this eternal life that's by definition corporate? We're there with God, yeah, but there's a bunch of other people too. Why? He calls us into this corporate body and eternal life that's shared. Well, perhaps it's because God knows that, that joy is magnified when it's shared. And joy is magnified when it's shared. You know, isn't it interesting that, that God himself exists as a trinity? The complexities of that are, are far beyond our, our comprehension. But we do know that although there's only one God, at the same time he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, such that it can be said there's fellowship in the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Spirit share the same essence of divine life. There's only one God. And in that fellowship, there's fullness of joy. And I think it's fair enough to to suggest that God made us to be the same way. This could be a a dimension of being made in his image as creatures. Again, not that we're divine, but he made us to share in life together. And as his people come together as one, it's meant to amplify their joy. It's something we get to taste here in this life, but it's made to the full in that kingdom. This explains why John writes in verse 4, he says, These things we write so that our, our joy may be made complete. Again, the thing about joy is it's not complete or fulfilled until it's shared. Can you imagine you know, running a marathon, which is a huge accomplishment. I will never do it. No desire whatsoever. But it's a huge accomplishment. But can you imagine you have absolutely no one cheering you on. There's no one waiting for you at the finish line. There's no one back home to congratulate you. There's just no one. 
You've, you've accomplished something truly remarkable, but wouldn't you say the joy has been somewhat diminished because there's just no one there to share it with? You would. Joy is only complete and made full when it's shared. And of course, the greatest joy of all is eternal life. You receive it on your own as an individual. It's an individual thing to come to Christ by faith. But immediately thereafter, you're not alone. You enter a body, a church, a fellowship, where I think God has designed the joy of your individual salvation to be amplified or made complete because you learn it's shared. And that's all to the greater glory of God. This is what's supposed to happen in the church. The church is to be a fellowship centered on Christ where the joy of salvation is made complete. And that sounds good, right? Don't you want to be like John? You want your joy to be made complete, to be made full. Who, who doesn't? You know, again, all we're doing this morning is just, just reflecting on the nature of true biblical fellowship. Just trying to gain a greater appreciation of this thing we call fellowship. I want to deepen your appreciation of the church as a fellowship. But that comes biblically as you realize that church fellowship is not just about sharing some activity or some common interest. It's about sharing life itself, which is about a person, the Savior, who brings us a common salvation. Already, you should be able to see then that, you know, if the church's fellowship is entirely relegated to some activities on a Sunday morning and that's it, there's something wrong there. That's off. That's a miss. That's not enough. There's more to it than that. Let's keep going. Like I said, ideally, the church should be a place where God's people come together and share the joy of salvation. It's amplified. It's not perfect yet because sin still interferes with that unity and therefore the joy of salvation. Only until the kingdom will it be made truly complete. It doesn't always work out that way in the church because of sin. Let's discuss now number three, the enemy of fellowship. The enemy of fellowship. And we'll just stay right here in 1 John. Let's keep going to verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. He's talking morally here. God is the definition of moral or ethical perfection. He's light. There's not a hint of sin or evil in him. However, verse 6, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's interesting. Again, do you see how John uses fellowship synonymously with salvation? You've got a person here. He claims what? He claims he has fellowship with God. That he's entered into this common life with God. But this person is walking in darkness, they're, they're living in unrepentant sin. So what's the reality? The reality is this person is a liar. He's lying in his claim to have fellowship with the God who is light. If you're walking in the darkness, you're living in unrepentant sin. You have no fellowship with the God who is light. 
But verse 7 is different. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's a different story for the one who walks in the light. That person proves, it demonstrates he is in the fellowship. He does have fellowship with God. And that person also proves he, he has fellowship with one another. He's entered into the life of God and the life of the church. It's not a statement that the believer will be perfect, but he will be characterized by, by holiness, by walking in the light. What qualifies him for this fellowship is simply this, though, that, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, no one earns a place in this fellowship by their efforts, by their holy living. We know we're saved by grace. We're only granted entrance by that blood of Christ, which covers all of our sin. And that's the only way in. But as you can see here, and as you surely know, sin is a fellowship killer. It puts an end to fellowship. I mean, sin is utterly selfish by definition. It seeks and serves self, not God, not others. We go our own way. But that type of selfishness will divide us from God and from one another. It's literally antithetical to this shared life we are to have. Sin will just kill fellowship. That's true with God. Naturally, sin interrupts fellowship with God. I mean, you see that immediately after the fall, right? Adam and Eve sin, they rebel, they go their own way. And right thereafter, what do they do? They hide from God's presence. That fellowship has been broken. They now have fear and shame, and they realize they're no longer fit to share life with God, so to speak. And as a result of their sin, they're cast out of the garden. They're driven away from God's special presence. Genesis 3.24 even says that God basically physically barred them from returning to the Garden of Eden. Why? It says that they could no longer access the tree of life. That they were no longer fit for life eternal with God. In sin, they were defiled. They entered the darkness, and so they're only fit for, for the outer darkness, for the place that is away from the presence of God forever. And that, that life is not good. You don't want that life that's not shared with God, but, but excluded from God. In addition, sin interrupts our fellowship with one another. And it's no wonder that immediately thereafter, after Adam and Eve, we find murder among the first children of the human race. And that's been the story ever since. Humans, all children of God, cannot get along. There's, just, there's no fellowship there. Living in the darkness, there's only sin, and sin divides. They just keep on dividing. And that division thereafter steals joy from life. And so long as sin reigns, the joy of life will be diminished. But again, thankfully, this is where Christ comes back in and gives us the answer. Like John says, thankfully, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
that that enables us to be restored to God, to be restored in fellowship with God. That's what Jesus came to do, to draw us out of the darkness, bring us back to the kingdom of light, reconcile us to God. Only he could do that. We couldn't do it ourselves. That's why he came, like it was said of Jesus at his birth. Matthew 4, 16, it says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Jesus came as the light of life to reconcile us to God. And he did that by paying for our sins, by giving up his life through death. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He exchanged his life for our life that we might inherit eternal life with God and that we might then walk in the light. And so now only when you enter the light of Christ by faith, do you find this reconciliation of fellowship with God and with others. You know, all this is simply further driving home the fact that true fellowship Biblically speaking, is only possible in and through Christ. You understand that? True fellowship is only possible in and through Christ. And true fellowship is Christ-centered. We'll see later that stands to reason that the expressions of this fellowship should also be Christ-centered. But we know that there's no true, biblically defined fellowship outside Christ. There's no sharing in that common life with those who don't have it or still outside Christ. Scripture says just that. You can listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, where Paul tells the church, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light? With darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You might say, you could have a lot in common, like all the same hobbies, but you're lacking the most important thing. We don't share life in common, eternal life, Christ. And therefore, we, we don't have the only thing necessary for true fellowship. And so he says, A right agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And consider that the church now is the dwelling place of the living God himself. That's where he goes to walk among his people again. That's where fellowship is restored in his Church And we, as his people, we get to share in that. But again, God is light. And there's no room in this fellowship for darkness. And that's why it's only those who have repented of their sins, turned to Christ, been forgiven and cleansed, who can enter this fellowship. Those are the ones who are brought in. That's simply what the church is. Now, in the church, though we are forgiven and saved, we... In this age, we we still sin. We still have the flesh. 
And that's why sin can still interrupt our fellowship. We can't break it. We have Christ. But it sure can interrupt it in this age. And it can diminish the joy of the fellowship. We now get to taste the joy of salvation. You'll get the full meal in the kingdom, but we are meant to taste and enjoy it and live in it right now, even as the church. But as long as sin wins these tiny little skirmishes, that joy is diminished. This is why the church, though, is told to, to constantly deal with sin, to put away sin, to overcome sin. How does that happen? It happens not by denying sin, but by confessing sin. Isn't that what John says in the next two verses? If you're still in 1 John, we're actually still there. Look at verse 8, right after. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. We know we, we still will wrestle with sin in this age. Don't deny it. That's not the answer. Christ came. The answer, well, is to confess it. Verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will restore to us the joy of our salvation, the joy of our fellowship. That happens vertically. That happens horizontally. That's what the church must continually do to, to as we read this morning in Ephesians 4, preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is why the church must be committed to put away sin through repentance and restoration. The joy of the fellowship is at stake. Sin always threatens to divide, but thankfully, the grace of God and the blood of Christ are greater. So let's always keep those first. Well, with the little time we have left, you know, as we reflect on the true fellowship of the church, let's add this in number four, the expressions of fellowship. Fourthly, the expressions of fellowship. We've argued up to this point that true biblical fellowship, it's not activity-based. It's not activity-driven, but it's about relationship. It's about entering into a relationship with God through Christ that puts us into common life with one another. And so the church's fellowship will always be a function of our relationship with God and one another. And that's all, that's all true and And that being said, it's also true that that our fellowship, our living life together, will take on certain forms. It will give rise to certain expressions, many of which God himself prescribes for the church. He tells us, as you come together, live life together, do these things. These will be expressions of the common life we have in Christ. The Father guides us into what that life should look like. And so even though this is not the essence of our fellowship, we covered that, it's still something we need to know and partake in these expressions of our fellowship. We need not neglect these, but actually pursue them. So what are they? What are some of the prescribed expressions of our fellowship? Well, because we're knit together to Christ and one another, We're going to come together corporately as one body to worship. Hebrews 10.25. We're going to submit to and sit under the preaching of his word together. 2 Timothy 4.2. Other times, we'll assemble in smaller groups. 2 Timothy 2.2. For prayer, discipleship, and encouragement. 
We might take our meals together from house to house. We'll also take a special meal together. The Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And communion itself contains within it a picture of our common life. As the one body of Christ, we're all partaking of the one bread. Another expression of our fellowship and common life is singing. This is why we sing. Ephesians 5.19 says we are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You know, we sing in the church to give glory to God. Absolutely. But it's also designed to, to amplify the joy of our salvation. And it's just not the same when you're alone. That that amplification only comes when you are with the church. And then, of course, you have the multitude of the one another's. All the commands that direct us how to live together and serve one another, care for one another, show hospitality to one another, bear the burdens of one another, pray for one another, comfort one another, encourage one another. These really don't have a lot to do with just going to a church building once a week. In fact, they make little sense in that context. If that's your only point of contact with the church, if all of your relationships with other believers are isolated to Sunday morning, just how much are you a part of this fellowship? How much are you part of this common life, living life together? No, that the picture is yet again, simply believers just going through life together, but now it's, it's a radically different life. We're not going the way of the world. So we can't really share the essence of life with them. We're, we're going to opposite directions. We're on planes headed the other way, but there's other people on that plane. I should huddle up with them and just go through life with them. Now keep in mind one thing, all the expressions of fellowship have in common is they all involve people. They all involve gathering and they all involve relationships. And there's no fellowship otherwise. This is the one part of the Christian life you can't get by watching church on TV. You cannot get fellowship from a screen. It just requires the sharing of life itself. It's something we need though. It's a fact I think many of you have learned firsthand through this pandemic. And we've been prevented from many aspects of, of the common life in Christ. And you can still access the preaching of the word and prayer, and you should. But when you say our fellowship has been hindered, and it's taken its toll, and that's because God knows we need it. He made it that way, something we, we need to actually prioritize. In fact, let's end with this, so our time is nearly up. But number five, the benefits of fellowship. Let's just clarify now that well, why this matters so much with the benefits of fellowship. Again, we can ask why, why did God make it this way? He puts us in the church. He makes us interdependent. Why? Well, we could again say probably because he knows we are just weak and frail creatures on our own. It's like the animal that wanders from the herd. It's easy prey. When you're by yourself. But strength comes when we're 
together. We already discussed magnified joy. That may be the, the greatest benefit of the church fellowship. That God is glorified when we delight in him. But there are other benefits to this fellowship. I mean, you think again about all the one another's that should be taking place in this family of God. And you read that list, you see they're all designed for our mutual support. Now, all the mutual care and service that should characterize the church family, they're meant for our flourishing in this life under God. Life is hard in a fallen, broken world. There will be trial and trouble and suffering and hardship, temptation, sin. It's just not a race you want to run alone. You want people running with you, cheering you on at the finish line. You need a a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12 might say. And as Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, two are better than one. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. You want that. If you're stumbling, you're struggling, you, you better have some companions. Otherwise, woe to you. In fact, that's what the verse says. It says, woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. That happens all the time to wandering Christians. They're on the fringe. They're never part of a fellowship. Nobody knows them. They don't know anybody. They come, they go. Meanwhile, they struggle because they're a sinner. We all are, but they have no one to pick them up when they fall. And woe unto them. They often fall hard. Some fall away. But you see, so much fellowship of the church is designed for this benefit our mutual support and protection and just preservation. Body life has been designed where we encourage one another just to keep putting away sin, to not give up, to keep running the race with endurance. And God simply knows we need this. Like Hebrews 3.13 says, it says, but encourage one another day after day. So long as it's still called today, that just means every day. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what happens in life when you go it on your own. You will be easy prey for the deceitfulness of sin. But we need to encourage one another every day. This happens where there are some who they fall out of the fellowship, out of the faith. The world tempts them with with other joys. But they're all fool's gold. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we need this mutual encouragement just to persevere in Christ. Hence the next verse, Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And that's really the ultimate proof that we are in fellowship with God. That we hold fast to the end. But really you have little chance of finishing the race of faith alone. And we need the fellowship. Well, a lot more could be said about biblical fellowship. It's really just been a brief survey. But hopefully this has given you some helpful reflections to consider. That there's more to the church's fellowship than coffee and donuts. Although that's a part of it. That can be a little expression. Still, God intends for us to share life together in Christ for his glory, for our joy, for our support. Hopefully, though, with this in mind, as you gain a greater appreciation for the church as a fellowship, 
You realize it's, it's worthy of pursuit. This is something I should be working at. Let's finish where we started. Acts 2.42. I'll just read it again. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But you catch that phrase, continually devoting themselves. Three words in English. It translates just one word in the Greek. And it speaks of steadfastness or faithfulness in something. Here it's talking about Christian living. The word is often used of prayer. Like Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. Do you believe that? Do you believe you need to grow in prayer? That's something you need to devote yourself to. You'd probably say, yeah. The same goes for scripture. You would say you need to be more devoted in reading and studying the Bible, right? You'd probably say that. It's something you need to pursue and work at and grow in, and and that's fine. But realize it's the same with fellowship. I bet you've never thought of fellowship that way, but it is. The first Christians were devoting themselves to the fellowship just as much as they were devoting themselves to the word and prayer. And we still have the sinful flesh. It's selfish to the core. It pulls us away from God and others. But our common life in Christ is greater. So for our good, for God's glory, this fellowship is another Christian discipline, spiritual discipline that, that we are to pursue, to devote ourselves to. And I hope you learn that. And, and then will you do that? Will you commit to be devoted? Not just reading the Bible and praying, although, yeah, that's one and two. But there's a three, there's a bronze, and it's the fellowship. You need the fellowship. Especially in this day and age, you know, from a pandemic to civil unrest, our nation is being pulled apart at the seams. But the church has to remain a refuge. A place where true fellowship and full joy remains as the times get harder and the days grow darker. Don't buy the lie that it's just, it's easier to sink away into distraction or isolation or even desertion. No, but this is a time to draw even nearer to Christ and his church to this fellowship. This is a time where we need joy and we were reminded and the only real joy we have is salvation. It's Christ. And I want that amplified in the church. It's time like these that we need to cling to the joy of salvation more than ever. You just, you can't do that alone. At least not in full. You can have plenty of joy in your salvation by yourself. You should, but it's, it's only made complete when we're together. It must be participated in together. So pursue that. And as we do that, as we continue to strive to come together, as we devote ourselves to the fellowship, Just see how God might use that to let the light shine in the darkness and to call others in to the fellowship. Again, as it said of the first church in Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number Day by day, those who are being saved. Let's pray. Our righteous Father in heaven, we we praise you this morning for 
fellowship. And first and foremost, that's fellowship with you. For we know we, like Adam and Eve too, we've gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. We, we cut ourselves off from fellowship with our creator by our sin. Born depraved, living it out, we are, we're only fit for the darkness. That's who we are. We thank you for your greater love. You set your love on us. Even while we were enemies, you sent your son Christ to die for us. To take all of our, our sin on himself. To pay for it. To give his perfect life. Life incarnate for us. That we might be brought back. We might be forgiven, reconciled, restored, and brought back to the light. We thank you for the Savior. What he did to restore us to fellowship with you. But Lord, we must also give thanks and partake in the fellowship with one another that was created thereafter. That he didn't bring us alone. This rescue mission had many in mind and, and we're, here we are. We're just forced together with all the others who call on Christ as Lord. But that's a good thing, Lord. You did that for our good, our benefit, our joy, our security, our encouragement, our protection. Something we desperately need. And I pray this morning you build in our hearts that the the conviction we need, the fellowship. It's not just a ritual, an activity, a Christian culture. It, it is a life lived pursuing Christ together. And it must be together. So build us up in this conviction and let that fruit just overflow in our lives and joy and in the world as a testimony. They would see there, there's something different about the true church. There's a, a joy and fellowship you can't find anywhere else. And may they come to Christ. So bless this time. Bless our fellowship at this church. May we reflect your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.